So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well, hey, I'm your buddy Nate Larkin here with my good buddy, our good friend, David Hampton, co-host of the podcast. We are once again geographically separated. Allie and I are temporarily relocated to Florida, so I'm sitting across the road from the beach in Amelia Island. David, still suffering for Jesus in Nashville or Franklin, uh, yeah, that's a good yeah. way to put it. Yeah, uh-huh. st- stuck away in storm country up here, and uh, the uh, I've been sitting here watching the you know the horrendous news of the you know the clusters of tornadoes that have come oh, through. Yeah, terrible, terrible, terrible. Uh, it was you know so sad for the people north of us. Um, yeah, yeah, just north of us. But um, it was a scary, scary little weekend last weekend. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, but uh, miss having you in Franklin, though, Dad Gummit. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I'm having to make these adjustments. Uh, you know, I, I'm used to getting out of bed in the morning and getting a shower and getting dressed, and then heading downtown for a cup of coffee and a conversation. Uh, usually, usually the first of two or three or four conversations during the course of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's more of a challenge. I've got to use the phone. And uh, I've got to be a whole lot more deliberate about uh, maintaining uh, existing connections and forming new ones. I got to be a whole lot more proactive. Uh, I'm not in a place where people are always bumping into me anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, here I am out, you know, alone on the beach, surrounded by an awful lot of uh, solitary retirees. Uh, yeah. But here's one thing I do know that for me, you know, my quality of life is dependent on connection. Yes, uh, a, a connection with myself. Yes, a connection with my higher power. But those alone are not enough. I need to be uh, connected with other people. And, uh, uh, you know, I have an opportunity here to reconnect with my wife in ways that both of us need. But she also needs and I also and I need as well to have connection even beyond our relationship. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, that connection isn't just for, um, you know, those of us in recovery. I mean, that connection is for human beings. I think, you know, one of the scariest, saddest things about uh, the pandemic has been the fact that so many people have lost, uh, any feeling of connection and therefore, you know, hopelessness and, um, all the the inner narratives that come to the surface that yeah, yeah. are negative and 
uh, and nowhere to really, uh, to process that. And, um, yeah. and it's started to take its toll. I'm seeing lots of people that are having some real deep struggles with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as our guest will, will let us know, I mean, this becomes absolutely crucially critical mm-hmm. when it comes to the kind of poisonous uh, thinking that can lead not just to, you know, uh, you know, uh, abusive behavior, self-abusive behavior, but, uh, you know, when it, when it gets to the, to the level of suicidal ideation. Our, when we're alone, we can, like John Kennedy Jr., uh, lose track of the horizon. We can be flying upside down. We can be headed down when we think we're headed up. Right. We can be certain that we're doing the right thing when we're doing the worst possible thing, not just for ourselves, but for the people who are with us. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another reason why it's so important for me to find time during the day, you know, in the Samson Society, we talk about making the daily connection uh, with another person and sharing with that person what we're feeling, what we're thinking, what we're doing, yeah. what we're thinking of doing. And being able to check our inner experience uh, against another person's, to say it out loud, to get a little bit of distance from it and allow somebody else to view it from their and experience from their perspective man, that can keep us right side up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Just yeah. saying it out loud so it becomes real. Yeah, that's the deal. Well, we do We do have a, a, a guest with quite a story. Uh, you and I are doing this, as we've said, we're doing this over the internet and uh, technology did get a little bit funky at the end of this conversation. Uh, I could hear you, but you couldn't hear me, but uh, I think you closed it out just well. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see what Rex does with the final version. We'll see how it winds up. Yeah. But stay stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment with Jeff Romick on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Hey, we've got a great guest this week. Uh, just a real genuine guy with a great story. Uh, Jeff Romick, thank you for uh, joining us on the on the show. Thank you all for having me. It's, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're a first-time author, got a book that just came out in November called Don't Freaking Kill Yourself. <laughs> uh, sort of. I suppose you can you can pronounce that word any way you want. You know, <laughs> don't fucking kill yourself. I but. usually just go with whatever the whoever's interviewing me says. So it's you yeah. know, don't effing kill yourself. Uh-huh. You know, the, yeah. the title has an asterisk, so it's yeah, 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 yeah. It yeah. can go many ways. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have we, we have no filters here, so we can actually say don't fucking kill yourself. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know about you, Jeff, but uh, for me, learning actually to deploy the F word appropriately was uh, central to my recovery. It was part of authenticity, learning to kind of, you know, call the dark thing the dark thing and say, you know, say it. 
So anyway, uh, welcome to the show. David, how did you meet Jeff? Well, I believe Jeff has some good people helping him promote his book. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. And and so I I, I have some great people. Yeah. And so uh, as it is what's happening to us now, Nate, as you know, is that people are finding us with great guests and interesting people and um, pitching them. And so I read a little bit about Jeff's bio and background and then the title of the book. And I thought, well, hell, we got to have that. So (laughs) 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 who can't have this guy on the show? (laughs) I appreciate that. Well, you know, let's talk about the title real quick. You know, just to, to kind of set the stage, Uh, Nate, I think you're right. It's, it's how do we use language? And, you know, when you, if you read my book, it's not, there's not a ton of, of language. It's, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not, it's, it's not a blue book, so to speak. But the reality is, is, you know, the story that I tell is about 10 years ago, a friend asked me if I could only say one more thing to my dad, what would I say? Oh, wow. I said, oh, wow. Don't fucking kill yourself. And, and it's not, you know, it's, yes, it is a, you know, it's an eye catcher as a, as a title, but, the reality is, is that it's that serious and it's, yeah. Yeah. you know, and I would say that if I only had one chance to, to talk to any friend um, or, or loved one, you know, that I've lost to suicide, you know, that's what I would say. And, and it's, it's, it's a mantra too, because I struggle with suicidal ideation. And mm-hmm. you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's easy, I think to, you know, when you're writing a book, promoting a book, you want to have a title that's catchy, but I wanted to have a title that was authentic and speaks to the seriousness of, of, of suicide and of of navigating suicidal ideation. Um, And so, you know, that's, that's where the title came from. And it was always the title and it was, you know, I was nervous when I went to my publisher and and they were like no it's great and we we tweaked the subtitle a little bit but um you know that that story has always hung with me um and it it is absolutely if i could only say one thing to my dad it is absolutely the thing i would say exactly like that yeah yeah absolutely that serious yeah well, let's let's back the story up. I sure. know that you know for all of us in recovery going forward requires some going backward, and we go back and reexamine that story. So, uh, Jeff, tell us a little bit about home and family life as you were uh, growing up, finding yourself, beginning to identify personality, finding your place in life. What was home like for you? What was the family like? And what were the obstacles that you found yourself hitting early on? You know, I, I grew up in a in a happy middle class family, upper middle class family in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, mm-hmm. My dad was a bankruptcy attorney and my mom was a, a first grade teacher um, for most of my a- adolescence. Uh, I think she taught second grade at one point, too, but uh, mostly first grade teacher. And, um, you know, growing up in the 90s, I I'm 43, so the 90s were really, I was in sixth grade in 89, 90, and I graduated yeah. college in 2000, so I truly grew up in the 90s. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think it was, I had, a, we were very close with my mom's side of the family, uh, my grandparents, uh, who I talk about a lot in the book, um, 
and my mom's sister and, and her family, um, my two cousins and my, my younger brother and I were, were kind of raised as siblings and we all went to the same church and had lunch, you know, family lunch and holidays at my grandparents' house in the country yeah. outside of, um, in Blythewood, South Carolina, outside of Columbia. And, um, you know, but I always felt, I always felt like I, I didn't fit. And mm. I think, I think later, you know, in 2002, I, I finally got my di- dual diagnoses of generalized anxiety and, and clinical depression. And, you know, looking back, and that was about six years, I guess, after, after my dad died. And, um, and, you know, looking back, I could, I can see where I was struggling with those things, you know, from middle school on, I just didn't, I just didn't know what they were. I didn't have, you know, terms or, you yeah. know, growing up in the nineties, it wasn't, you know, we weren't necessarily, um, going to therapy immediately or, or yeah, jumping right. medication or anything. And so I was just kind of navigating the, the world as a kid in the nineties. And then, um, about three weeks after I turned 18, um, I woke up to learning that my dad had, had put himself in, in our family Volvo station wagon on the side of the house and did the carbon monoxide thing and had died by suicide. And, um, and you know, that was really kind of the fault fault line in my life, I guess, you know, looking back 25 years plus almost 26 years later now. And, um, you know, I, at this point, obviously, I don't know what my life would be with without that event. Um, but you know, that's that's kind of where where my adult story started, and um, and honestly, the interesting part of my sobriety journey was that when he died, I was very adamant. I I, I wasn't a big drinker um, in in high school at that point. At, anyway but i was adamant that as as i was going to college i was going to deal with this myself and i wasn't going to you know deal with it with substances or anything and it was really it wasn't until the end of college that i even started drinking um Mm -hmm. and then um you know i was very i was a very moderate drinker um mostly for different control reasons um for a long time. And then sometime in, in 2014, something changed. I I don't know if it's blood chemistry or what, but something changed. And, you know, I needed, you know, when I was in my career and going to social events and things like that, like I needed a couple bourbons to deal with my social anxiety, but then I was, I was fine and I could navigate it and I could just have a couple bourbons. And then in, in 2014, something changed, and um, and by the end of 2017, you know, my nights, even though I didn't even really drink at home, I was a binge drinker, um, but my nights drinking to my nights drinking to, you know, basically the blackout were becoming a circle Venn diagram, and, um, yeah. and, you know, I was just not, the person that I wanted to be and the person I was being were so disconnected. And, um, so I've 
with with my life a, a bit in free fall, I decided to check out AA. My college roommate had been sober since t- 2001, and he took me to my first meeting on December 3rd, 2017, and I just picked up my four-year um, medallion week before last. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Well, Jeff, looking at your bio, um, you know, you're not writing a self-help book here, right? I mean, this is no. um, this is not um, this is not you saying, you know, here are your, you know, 12 clever ways uh, to to stay in recovery or something. You you've battled a lot of things besides addiction. It sounds like. Yeah, I've had. Yeah, I mean, I have. But I mean, I think we all do. But yeah, I. In, in deciding to do this, I didn't feel, I felt like I'm a storyteller that has some insight mm-hmm. that I want to share, mm-hmm. um, but not that I have all the answers. And so I really, you know, I kind of have three sort of here are the, the tips from my book around for people who struggle with suicidal ideation. And, you know, the first one is, share and share as often as you as you are willing to because the more we keep keep whatever it is in our head especially leading up to the suicidal ideation um you know the better we are if we're in conversation with our family or a friend or a therapist or even on social media just getting things out of our head and out into the world mm-hmm. takes away you know some of that power and so part of this you know, writing this book was, I want to help change the conversation around suicidal ideation. So I'm going to share first, um, not I'm going to share only. And because I think that, you know, in the past 20 years, the needle has moved on the stigma around mental illness. And we talk about mental health, and we talk about therapy, and we talk about recovery, and we talk about uh, medicine, um, you know, in a way more open way than we did 20 years ago. Um, but we still don't talk about suicidal ideation. It's still very difficult for people who experience suicidal ideation to tell so- someone or the public, you know, on social media or whatever, you know, I think about suicide, I think about dying. Um, and, you know, I think that the re- the reality of, or the paradox of that is, the more those suicidal thoughts stay in your head, the more poisonous they become. And, and yeah. that's what I think happened with my dad is that I, I understand my disease. I don't think he had any understanding at all of his, but I feel like I inherited from him. Um, and I think about how hard it must have been for him to live 47, almost 48 years and um, navigate the mental health issues that I, that I have that I assume he also had without anything, without talking, without therapy, without medicine, um, without any kind of help. And, you know, I think that it's this, this poisonous idea in his mind that it would be better for his family financially for him to die um, without letting that idea out of his mouth and into the world. Yeah. The power of it, took took him you know took his mind over and and ended up becoming a logical idea to him and you can like i can read that in his suicide letter to me that 
he felt like he truly believed he was doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, and that mm -hmm. he was sacrificing for us. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but that's what happens with suicidal ideation is you get upside down in your head. Um, and, you know, so the first, the first thing that I'm hoping, you know, with the book itself and then with, with talking about the book on podcasts like y'all's is to get people who, who struggle, you know, with, with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, especially to share, to share more. And, and then the second thing is I really f figured out about halfway through that what I was writing about are the people, passions and experiences of my life that bring me joy. And therefore in my darkest moments, connecting to those memories help me stay alive and give me hope uh, um, for yeah. the future and help me, you know, on November 29th, 2017, I was closer to ending my life than I had ever been. And it was, it was connecting to people and memories that helped me pull through and make it to the next day, which is when I called my best friend, Jason and Charlotte and said, you know, I think the through line with the things I'm experiencing and the problems I'm having is alcohol. And I don't drink like an alcoholic quote unquote, because I don't have, you know, I don't drink at home. I'm, you know, just this perception of what an alcoholic is. I don't know if it's this, but I need to make a change and I'm willing to explore this. Can I come to Charlotte? Will you take me to a meeting? Um, and so, you know, we did that and, he gave me the big book that Saturday night, December 2nd. And I, you know, read for a couple hours and he, when he gave me the book, he said, he said, look, read this. If you feel like you want to go to a meeting, there's one at nine in the morning, I'll take you. And I was like, great. So I read for a couple hours, got up and, you know, we went to the meeting and that's where I picked up my white chip, but it's, and that's a, you know, a story I share in the book, which now that is one of the stories, you know, of, of the people and, and passions and experiences that, you know, that keep, keep me alive. So that's sort of the second thing. And the third thing goes back to the title as mantra, uh -huh. you know, at the end, you know, tr share, connect with your people, passions and experiences. And then if you're in that darkest moment, just remember the mantra, don't fucking kill mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. so that's sort of the, you know, the self-help part of the book, if there is any, but what that's what's built around it is, you know, 60 odd stories from my life of those people, passions and experiences, um, because, you know, originally the idea from the book for the book, I was always very haunted by, you know, as my dad sat in that car with carbon monoxide filling the air around him before he lost consciousness, what was he thinking about? And why mm -hmm. wasn't it enough for him to stop? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. you know, and then combine that idea with the idea that our lives flash before our eyes when we die. You know, the original concept of the book is if I were in that car, if my life was flashing before my eyes, what would I see? Mm -hmm. And so that's where I started um, with telling the stories of my life from that perspective. Um, and I chose to tell them out of order because it's, you know, I don't think we would, I don't think our lives would flash before our eyes chronologically and the way that our minds 
play with memory and play with time. Um, you know, the book definitely has a story arc um, that I that I feel like is smooth, but it jump you know jumps around in time and um, and so that's you know that's kind of the the conceit of the book as memoir rather than self help. So yeah, you know, I definitely wanted it to be as authentic as possible to people who are struggling with suicidal ideation, to people who are struggling with um, addiction and, and who, you know, maybe in recovery. And, you know, my goal was, was really authenticity and connecting authentically to people who, to the core reader that, that struggles. Um, but yeah, in, in the sense of memoir rather than self-help. Say, I, I, I have a question. It's kind of you know, off the reservation. This comes a little bit out of left field, but um, you grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. We like to think of Nashville, Tennessee as the buckle of the Bible belt, but I think Columbia, South Carolina is a strong contender for the title. And you mentioned that uh, you went to church with your family growing yeah. up. Uh, and eventually you found your way uh, to sobriety through a recovery program that, while it is not uh, Christian per se, is built upon the concept of a higher power. Yes. I'm, I'm wondering how your spiritual slash religious experience uh, impeded uh, or later helped. Uh, how did that play into uh, your perhaps hiding, not facing, not knowing, or not being willing to look at what was going on emotionally, in your heart and between your ears during the dark years. Uh, what role does spirituality play in your life today? Yeah, so I I grew up Southern Baptist. Um, mm-hmm. My grandfather, Clyde Riley, Papa to us, um, who I talk about a lot in the book, um, he was a Southern Baptist preacher, um, but kind of an actual to, today, what we think of today as a Democrat, Southern, Southern uh-huh. Baptist, although he was, a, you know, a Democrat then too, but, um, yeah. but he was, he preached in small churches and, and one of the first stories I heard and that always stuck with me is when, when they, and that's in the book is, um, when my mom was, I think eighth in eighth grade, maybe 12, 13, 14, um, they lived in Moulton, Alabama, and my grandfather um, engaged with the black community and, and other mm-hmm. Christians that that were black. And mm-hmm. the KKK didn't like that, and they burned a cross in his yard. And, you know, wow. I I learned very, on, very early on, you know, Papa was definitely one of my um, heroes, and my grandmother, his wife, B. Um, but they taught me... I mean, I was Southern Baptist, but they taught me t- to be a Christian um, in kindness and in love your neighbor and nice. um, yeah. just, you know, some some things that are traditional Christian values that, you know, whole other conversation, but seem to be slipping a bit <laughs> these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I've always been a Christian. I never had a, you know, my my. The thing that kept me from kind of fully embracing church mm-hmm. was never Christianity. It was more mm-hmm. humans. Um, yeah. And 
and and like I said, you know, growing up, I just never felt like I fit, and that was true everywhere, and that and including church. So, you know, I went to church, but I never felt like I really fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, after high school, I, I I've always remained a Christian, but I never really I didn't go to church consistently for a long time after high school. Not in an opposition to it kind of way yeah, just yeah. in a, I never felt like I fit and therefore that and I I have always believed that I can have a relationship with God um in yeah. my in my own wherever I am I don't have to be in a church and so um I was not really in that practice um but my ex-wife went to Notre Dame for law school and we lived in South Bend Indiana from 2003 to 2006. And being around Catholicism was very interesting for me. I really liked the tradition of it. Um, you know, we didn't go to mass every week or anything, but we did some. And, um, and so when we moved to Atlanta in 2006, sometime soon after that, maybe in 07, um, we visited St. Luke's Episcopal here, which is the church I'm, I'm still a member of. Um, and I and I found that like, I, the Episcopal Church has the tradition of Catholicism mm-hmm. and the history, mm-hmm. but also sort of the more progressive, progressivism that I identified with, um, and so, um, so I've been a member of St. Luke's, but I, I would say my relationship, when getting to to the sobriety part, my relationship with church definitely changed um at the beginning of sobriety and and has and has remained so and i think it was you know it's interesting at the beginning when i first i remember being at jason's and reading the big book and and feeling the christian undertones and feeling like oh i this i get this because i've i grew up christian um yeah but then I had such a hard time in those early months with the third step. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Because I believed in, I believed as a Christian, but I never had, I would never say that I had had a personal relationship with, with my higher power. Uh-huh. And yeah. so yeah. in that early time, And I think part of that was like that not fitting in and hearing other people talk about like their relationship Mm -hmm. with Christ and everything and never really feeling that internally and then feeling like an outsider and then never knowing how that worked. And so um, and just sort of embracing my role as the outsider, which I kind of got used to in my life um, over time. And so it was interesting for me when I really started to kind of get my sea legs in AA after the first few months, it was by deciding that AA and the group itself in the short term would be my higher power, that I was spending Mm -hmm. too much time getting caught up on this old idea from growing up of like this relationship with Christ and that, was different from what was happening in the program and I needed to just do the program Mm -hmm. and and not like get caught up in, in the theology of it from my life. Right. Because that's not what the program's about. 
the program's about a higher power and you know and i had lots of i mean atlanta's a great place to get sober but in town atlanta it's definitely more i would say it's more at least in the people that are outspoken are more atheists than they are mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. i had a lot of atheist friends who were saying you know this is how you know this is how i do it because obviously we don't want to we don't want anybody to not get sober because they're worried about the you know, the religious undertones. Um, And so there's lots of dialogue in Atlanta meetings around, um, you know, your higher power can be G.O.D., group of drunks. It can be a doorknob. It can be a rock. You know, whatever it needs to be for you to not get hung up on it. Um, You know, I have one friend who says, I pray every day, but I'm an atheist. I don't know what I pray to, but I pray, you know, the program says I need to pray. I, I pray and it keeps me sober. Yeah. Um, so early on, that was really, um, that was, re- it was, it was strange. Cause I thought it was like, this won't be a strange thing for me because I, I grew up Christian and, and I am Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, but my Christianity and my sobriety aren't necessarily overlapping things. Um, and I think that's also where it, my relationship with church has changed because I think even in churches that I feel comfortable with, there's still so much, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but there's still so much going to church because society says you need to go to church. Right. And Mm so for me, I've seen, I've just seen so much more humanity and in the rooms of AA where Nobody goes to AA because it's cool to go to AA. Like, there's no societal pressure. Yeah. But, like, we all know that by being there, that we can't stay sober alone. And we're there to genuinely, you know, as part of the 12 steps, as part of service, um, we're there to help other alcoholics. And so I've just found, I have found spirituality in the rooms of AA and in the program of AA in, in ways I never found before. It hasn't decreased my my identification as a Christian, um, mm-hmm. but it has it has created. I have found a connection to a higher power who I call God, mm-hmm. um, but I also differentiate that from what I've heard people like my relationship with Christ per mm-hmm. se, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's nuance there um, that I'm sure other people who are gonna who are listening to this navigate. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it was, I think maybe the second half of my first year, I found a really great book called Higher Power. Um, I don't know if y'all have read that, but it's, it's just about, it really is, you know, sort of connecting the program of AA with scripture and Christian spirituality. Mm -hmm. And again, I, to me, those things are kind of cousins. Um, and they are two things that I have to, you know, make, make space for in my life, um, separately that often also entwine. Um, yeah. but, but that was a book that really, you know, cause at that point I had, you know, I was farther in working the steps. I, I was past sort of that. I got hung up on, on, you know, the relationship with Christ versus, the you know the third step higher power yeah um which for some people those things can work together greatly i'm not in any way saying they can't it just didn't for me um 
but that that book really helped me get a little more grounded and then you know sort of get into this space where I started to get connected to higher power, you know, praying every day, mm-hmm. developing my own kind of spirituality that wasn't religion per se. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, and that's, that's been, you know, where I really started to get, you know, healthier and more grounded and, you know, I'm not great at it. I mean, I, I try it yeah. <laughs> and I try to like, I, you know, I still struggle with with the idea of control and what what is control and what isn't control, what is turning it over, what isn't turning it over. Um, but you know, I know that that's just part of part of this, and I think that's where I think AA is such a beautiful thing that some days it's just enough for me to not drink, mm-hmm. and other days there's this vast program and there's this elasticity to sort of what I can do and what I can read and what I can think about and what I can navigate and learn. Um, yeah. And, you know, but the program is willing to meet me where I am, you know, on any given day. And I think that's why it's been something that has been a success for me because, you know, I, I have proper expectations set for it and I feel like it has those for me and it's, you know, a forgiving place when, I'm not when I'm not perfect at the program. And even if I relapse, which I haven't done gratefully, um, it would still welcome me back. Right. You know? Well, I think you've made some really great points, Jeff, because um, as a fellow Episcopalian now myself, um, mm-hmm. I had similar issues with um, a disillusionment of church after I got sober and uh, what that meant. Um, ironically, I happened to work at one at the time when I got sober, but that's another story. Um, and, uh, but I have, I have heard a lot of people, um, talk about their, their, their previous traditional Christian faith, um, having to be adjusted in some ways, uh, as they get sober to accommodate some of the questions and some of the way, the new ways they view spirituality. And I think the I, I love the part about uh, what you said about the, the greater, can you believe in the greater good of the group um, that that is in and of itself? You know, maybe that's a, where two or three are gathered together. I don't know. But is yeah. the greater good of that group something that you believe has your best interests at heart that you can trust and buy into? you know, uh, helping people kind of bridge that either agnosticism or that skepticism or even atheism uh, where we're, uh, you know, presenting a, a higher power. So I, I appreciate you making that point. One thing I wanted to ask you to about the book, because it seems like the book would benefit people who have loved ones that do struggle with suicidal ideation. Um, Absolutely. What is something that you would love for people who have loved ones struggling with this um, to know, for instance, what is helpful when, when people might confide in you that, um, you know, there are days where I think it'd be better that I'm not even here or, you know, I've really thought about just ending all this. I think my, I would be out of this pain and my life would be over and people would um, move on. You know, I mean, what, what is helpful for people hearing that? Because people freak out, 
you know, yeah. and in my profession, I'm supposed to kind of report that, you yeah. know, like uh, this person's probably possibly in danger of self-harm, you know, um, but, but a loved one, what's going to, what's going to be helpful for them to, to hear and be able to respond without complete shock and awe um, and, and reply to this person that it doesn't feel like they're negating their feelings. Yeah. So first off, I'll say, you know, this is where I'm not a professional and there are professional resources that, um, you know, that have tested ways of, of responding. So there's that. And on my website, suicidesurvivalstories.org, we've got links to, to some great resources. Um, you know, for me, it's, so there's, I'm going to take your question in two parts. If, if someone is saying to me, I'm thinking about suicide or I don't want to live or those things, then the first thing I'm going to do, or if someone is saying to you, um, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is say, well, you're sharing, right? So you're letting those thoughts out of your, out of your brain and that's, that's brave and you're, you're helping remove the power, you know, from your mind, um, and, you know, of, of the three tips that I share, like you're doing the first one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, good work and not I'm alarmed. Right. Because right. um, if someone is saying something out loud, like it's far more it's far more deadly if they don't. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where this the culture and the paradigm of like. Having to report or, you know, people feeling like they're going to get taken to a mental hospital if they say they're thinking about suicide, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, that only keeps them from sharing, which only can turn more poisonous. Right. Exactly. So, um, you know, from a friend and family standpoint, you know, there are professional responsibilities that are professional responsibilities and, and I'm not, I'm not speaking to those, but Mm -hmm. just from a friend or family standpoint, if you're, if you're not required to report based on your profession, then, you know, the first thing you should, you should do is not freak out, mm-hmm. approach them, you know, engage with them as a, as a calming, centering um, ally mm-hmm. and, and compliment them for, for sharing and, and then ask them, you know, ask them questions that are, op- you know, that are open-ended questions to get them talking mm-hmm. to the point that they, uh, un, un, until they don't want to talk. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's a situation where you, then this is where there's no, there's no set way. You really have to meet the person where they are and sort of take the cues from them mm-hmm. because any, I mean, at least in my experience of sharing um, about my own suicidal ideation, like, it's really easy to, to backpedal. It's really easy to stop sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, unless you personally also experience suicidal ideation, like you should never say like, I know how you feel or anything like that. Like you should just listen and create that space, you know, a, a safe, trusted space. Um, and, and just encourage them to share and, you know, to the extent that, that they're to their to the extent they're willing, and then, um, you know, 
let them know when they're when they're not when they're done sharing like i'm here for you at any time you know text call whatever don't hesitate i'm here to listen you know yeah. you if you're that other person in that conversation you can't have an agenda even though it's your gut instinct to have an agenda because you want your loved one to stay alive right mm-hmm. um but you can't have that agenda you're the best way to have that agenda is to give them the space they need um, and know that you're here from the, for them on, on their, you know, on their terms, on their terms. Yeah. To meet them where they are. Because again, people who have suicidal ideation often are people who their ideal choice is to isolate. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, if you give them any reason to backpedal and isolate, that's what they're going to do. But what they really want is to connect. And, you know, when we're talking about addiction, one of the things I heard early on in the rooms that has stuck with me and that I love is that the opposite of addiction is connection. That's what we're seeking um, through whatever addiction we have. And, um, but with suicidal ideation, you know, connection is what we're seeking. So if we open up to somebody to connect and then, they push their, you know, whatever their agenda is on us. That is the mm-hmm. opposite of what we want and what we need. Right. Um, and maybe it's and so fear. Really, maybe they're pushing their own fear. Right. Back, totally. Yeah. You they're, know? they're, yeah, yeah, for so, sure. Their agenda. Yeah. I say agenda, but yeah, I mean, I think it is, it would be fear more than mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. Just fear yeah. of losing this person, fear, fear that they're hurting, mm-hmm. but it's so easy to get in the way right. of yeah. sort of that organic engagement um, and supporting your person the best way. And I, you know, I, I laid out sort of who's this book for very early on. And that core reader is the, the individual that struggles personally. And I tried to write authentically to them and make choices based on them. But I also, you know, that secondary audience is anyone who loves somebody that struggles with suicidal ideation. Um, And, you know, and hopefully by being authentic, I was able to give insights in how my mind works that can help, you know, help those loved ones um, gain some insights into into their people as well. That was my yeah. goal. Yeah. Okay. Well, the book well, well again done. is... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, uh, for sure. Yeah, and, so the uh, book is... Don't Nate, are you... Um, with us still, I think we might have lost Nate there for a minute. Um, but uh, right. I tell you what, Jeff, it has been a joy <laughs> having you with us here on the podcast. And um, I hope that the book is um, a great success for you. And I hope a lot of people read it that can benefit from that um, that very sensitive uh, subject and that that. Uh, vulnerable lane that you're that you're writing in so thank you so much for your time and for joining us thank you too and i I just i also want to say you know i i said earlier like i i did this to sort of share go first and share my story Mm -hmm. Um, but i've also launched the suicide survival stories podcast yeah to share stories of of others who have lost loved ones to suicide 
who have experienced suicidal ideation or attempted suicide uh-huh. or have uh, or work in suicide prevention, suicide awareness. And so our first episode went up last month. The next episode is coming out um, right before Christmas. And we'll be doing monthly um, for a little while. But that's, you know, that's my hope where we can share more and more stories. And again, just continue to um, try to impact this conversation around suicidal ideation and change that stigma. Yeah. And uh, Jeff, how would people get in touch with you? I know they the book is probably available on Amazon and anywhere that you can get books. But uh, how if people wanted to reach out to you or uh, get in touch with you, find you, how would they do that? There, you can contact me through through the website suicidesurvivalstories.org. Okay, um, and then yeah, the book is available um, on Amazon. And then also, if you like me are a fan of independent bookstores, mm-hmm. if you just go into your local independent bookstore and ask for um, "Don't fucking kill yourself," <laughs> and it's got an asterisk uh-huh. um, instead of the "u," uh-huh. or search, or they can search on my name, Jeff Romig, R O M I G. Uh-huh. And um, they can they can buy it from you for you from the Ingram catalog. So Perfect. even if it's not on the shelves, they can they can order it. Great. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here, and we will uh, look forward to hearing more things from you. I hope in the future. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for for y'all's work and and for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, great. Thank you. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And I feel like um, this was a really good conversation, Nate, because it is a very taboo conversation mm. for a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. This whole subject of suicidal ideation uh, not only has the potential of making people uncomfortable when they hear um, loved ones expressing their hopelessness in that way, um, mm-hmm. but it, it, it causes people to feel, you know, fearful, helpless. Um, you know, am I doing the right thing? What, what is helpful? What's, what's okay. What's, what's not, but, um, it, it is a really, I feel like a brave book that Jeff yeah. Romig, uh, put together, uh, both with his own story of, yeah. uh, recovery and all the other things that he didn't mention that he's been through. And, um, and just how he's processed this whole, this yeah. whole subject. You know, it takes me back to some of the early days of the Samson Society. Uh, and I remember <laughs> a visitor came in one time and uh, we got, we broke up for sharing into smaller groups and he came back, talked to me afterward and his eyes were wide. And he said, we got to do something. We got to do something. Uh, he said, the guy in my group was saying that he, uh, he feels like he wants to kill himself. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I just, I just laughed and uh-huh. said, I said, oh yeah, I know who that is. And he says that every week. And it's important that he says that every week because that's what's keeping him alive. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that, that brother, we went through a season where for months he was talking, not just in meetings, but also in daily conversations uh-huh. about where his darker thoughts were taking him. Uh-huh. But, but because he had connection and because he was able to get help, he eventually found himself out of that veil. And he's doing fine these days. Yeah, yeah. But but uh, there was a lot of panic 
Yeah. And, and it's natural to have that panic. I think it was insightful of you to say that behind, you know, our urge to jump in and try to control and to run our own agenda mm-hmm. is really just is, is fear. It's an awful lot of fear. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. is a fearful thing to hear for sure. And, yeah. um, and, and it's also a little different too when somebody tells you that they have a plan. Yeah, um, that, oh, exactly. And that they're, you know, they've thought this out to a, to an extent that is, um, you know, a premeditated idea yeah. that this is yeah. not just hopeless ideation that causes me to feel like it would be better if I weren't alive. Um, yeah. You know, when somebody begins to tell us that they've got a plan and that they're, thinking about executing it in this way. And, um, you know, then we have to really begin to take that in a, in a different turn as well. But I'm always fascinated by how much overlap there are with the subjects of our episodes when these guests haven't listened to one another. And, and Uh a couple of these episodes I'm thinking of aren't even posted yet, you know? And so, um, it's like, uh, you know, we just have recorded this episode with Stephen Hayes about his book, uh, Why Can't uh, Church Be More Like an AA Meeting? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and Stephen outlines so many of the same things that uh, apart from ever knowing about Stephen's book, Jeff addressed uh, today yeah, with yeah, his yeah. own spiritual uh having to reconstruct a little bit what that all meant yeah. for him. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I kind of smile as I listen to some of these things. And I wonder if there's not a, a bigger force uh, behind this, getting a message out that maybe. <laughs> no, you're yeah. suggesting that there might be a benevolent higher power at work yes. communicating with humanity in a caring way. Smarter than you and I, who believes that this message needs to be said. <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, yeah. But uh, well, it, great, great conversation today. That is just so good to be in the stream of recovery and the stream of healing, the stream of hope. And mm-hmm. to have these, you know, honest, at times painful, but redemptive conversations. Mm-hmm. And to no longer live in fear of the shadows and fear of the dark. Know that uh, light wins, love wins. Yeah. And healing is always there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well... Once again, it's been so good to be together and to have another conversation. I well, think this wraps it. But before we go, uh, yes. I seem to recall <laughs> that we have a sponsor. Speaking of healing, um, yeah. yes. <laughs> BetterHelp.com. And uh, again, folks, BetterHelp.com is uh, here for you online. It's a licensed therapist at your disposal. And uh, you can subscribe to this service and discuss any of the various things that you have uh, going on in your life that are uh, causing you to feel stuck, causing you to feel um, as though uh, maybe things aren't worth fighting for anymore. And um, mm-hmm. these are folks that can help bring us back out of that dark place and help us assess our lives at our own uh, convenient time in our own convenient, private, safe place. Uh, betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety will get you a discount uh, on your subscription. It will also allow us to know if our resources are helpful to you and that you're taking advantage of them, which we see every week that, that people do. Um, so if you would uh, add that slash positive sobriety to your uh, to your uh, login, you'll get uh, some benefits uh, for for joining up. So but mm-hmm. better health, better help, H E L P, betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety. 
All right. And as always, we do love to hear from you. Uh, we answer every letter. You can reach us at Positive Sobriety Podcast at gmail.com. All right. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 